Many of us have heard the invitation in recent years to have a growth mindset, but how do you establish this for an entire team? In this episode, how to embrace both the performance and learning zones to help a team perform at the highest levels. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 644. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. We know that a big part of leadership and success in our organizations, not only as individuals, but of course for our teams, is learning, the ability for us to learn effectively. And we've talked a lot on the show over the years on how we learn individually well, how we support the learning of others. We haven't talked as much of how do we create a environment of learning for a team and how do we embrace growth mindset. So many of us have heard that term popularized by Carol Dweck, and yet it's a challenge to be able to do that in practice. Today, I'm so glad to welcome an expert who's going to help us to take some practical steps on how we can lead our organizations to learn more effectively. I'm so pleased to welcome Eduardo Braseño. He is a global keynote speaker and facilitator who guides many of the world's leading companies in developing cultures of learning and high performance. Earlier in his career, he was co-founder and CEO of MindsetWorks, the first company to offer growth mindset development services. Previously, he was a venture capital investor with the Sprout Group. His TED Talk, How to Get Better at the Things You Care About, and his prior TEDx talk, The Power of Belief, have been viewed more than 9 million times. He is a Pahara Aspen Fellow, a member of the Aspen Institute's Global Leadership Network, and an inductee in the Happiness Hall of Fame. He is the author of The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Eduardo, what a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you, Dave, for having me here. It's a pleasure to be here. I noticed the title of this book first, of course, The Performance Paradox, and it, of course, begs the obvious question about paradox. And we do all deal with this paradox every single day. Could you illuminate what the paradox is and what's important for us to know about it? Absolutely. So the performance paradox is kind of the the counterintuitive fact that if we spend all of our time performing, our performance suffers. So our results are lower if we're so focused on performance that all we're doing is performing. So what does that mean? What does performing mean? Because often we think the way to succeed is just to work hard and get things done and perform. But but what we are not clear on is that there's a difference between effort to get things done as best as we know how, right? Trying to minimize mistakes and effort to improve and to innovate and to go beyond the known. So I call those, the first one is the performance zone when we're focused on performing. And the second one is the learning zone when we're focused on learning. And we can do both of those together at the same time, but that's different than what most of us tend to gravitate toward which is just focusing on just getting through our to-do list as best as we know how. And that actually leads to stagnation. You know, we, we don't get to improvement or to innovation if we're focused only on getting things done. Very few people in our audience haven't heard the term growth mindset at this point. Of course, famously established by Carol Dweck's research. You worked with Carol. And I think one of the 
things that's interesting thinking about growth mindset is we often think about it just as a mindset, just our just our thinking <laughs> about it. And one of the things I think is really interesting and comes out in the book really strongly is that the mindset itself isn't really enough, is it? Well, the mindset is very powerful, but you're like you're saying is is not enough. And so with growth mindset, it, it, like you're saying, it it has become a buzzword, something that kind of gets easily distorted into something that's positive or is about working hard. And so when we distort it and we're not clear on what it means, then we are less effective at fostering it. So a growth mindset, when we ask people, what does growth mindset mean to you? They often answer, it's being open-minded or it's working hard or persevering. And a growth mindset is none of those things. A growth mindset is a belief about the nature of human beings. Specifically, is the belief that we can change and that other people can change, that our abilities and our qualities are malleable, they can be developed, that we can change. And the reason that that's important is that what growth mindset research has uncovered is that this belief that people can change and that we can change is necessary for us to do the behaviors that lead to change, right? And, and in order to improve, we have to change. We can't improve if we stay the same. But as you're saying, it's not sufficient. So just believing that we can change is not enough in order to change. We also have to understand how to change. And it is the combination of those two things, as well as having a reason to change, a why, something we care about, a purpose. It's a combination of those three things that lead us to be motivated and effective learners. And so the book is mostly about how to change. This distinction we were talking about of the learning zone and the performance zone. And to go a little bit deeper on that, if we, we take if we take things outside of our context of the workplace or leadership, just to understand the concepts better, and then we'll bring it back and think about implications for us. But if we think about, for example, sports, if you're playing an important championship match and you're having trouble with a particular move, you're going to avoid that move during the match because you want to win. That's all you care about is winning that game so you can progress to the next level. Right. But then after the match, you're going to go to your coach and say, coach, I have to work on this particular move, exactly what you avoided during the game, right? Because in the game, we're in our performance zone. Then with our coach, we're in our learning zone. We're doing something very different from what we do to perform. And it is those things that we do that are different from what we do to perform that lead us to improve and then to be able to perform at higher levels and to achieve higher results. So to your point, yes, we need to believe that we can improve the growth mindset, but we also need to understand what are effective strategies that we can use on our own and with our colleagues, to your point about teams and organizations, in order to foster both performance, but also learning. And as, as much as I think we all try to do this better individually, there's some obstacles at doing this well as a team. And a big piece of work is, of course, performing and knowing how to do our job, getting things done, filling our to-do list. And that in and of itself can be an obstacle depending on the team and the organization just because the culture is so much, okay, let's just get stuff done. It's not so much about taking the time to be in the learning zone. And there's a couple of other areas you highlight and a couple of distinctions that I thought were really fascinating. And one of the obstacles toward becoming a team or organization that really does embrace more of a growth mindset is performance being rooted in competition rather than collaboration. Could you tell me about that distinction? 
Absolutely. And and just to be clear, you know, performance is very valuable, right? To your point, it's a big part of our job and it's how we get things done, it's how we create an impact. So performance is great and we want to perform. We just want to combine it with learning. But yeah, just like we have learned this sense that performing is the way to succeed in our society. I think there's also a prevalent view in society, particularly kind of in the West, that competition is the way to succeed and to perform highly. And so we tend to talk about being competitive and competing against other people. And that can work okay in sports and even within organizations that can be okay. I I personally like to think of people who are doing similar work to the work that I'm doing as mission allies, people who care about the same things, who want to create the same impact in the world. So I would rather collaborate with them than compete with them, you know, being open with them, sharing my ideas, listening to theirs. That way we can learn more and we can perform more at the aggregate, right? And create a greater impact. But what's clear is that within an organization, competition is much more destructive than it is valuable and helpful because when we're competing against our colleagues, we're withholding information from them. We might be doing things that is going to lower their performance. We don't have an open dialogue with transparency so that we can share information both to learn and to perform. And so if we think that the way to succeed is competition, I think that's worth thinking about and reflecting about and, and thinking about whether that might be getting in the way of our goals, which is to grow more and to have greater impact. Yeah, indeed. And the part of the book that I really zeroed in on of like, how do you start to think about this, not just as an individual, but how do you start to create systems that really lead an organization to be more likely to do this, a team or an organization at a broader scale? And you highlight a few examples, and I thought it's really, maybe really fun for us all to learn, like, what does this actually look like? Even if our mindset's in the right place, like in practice, what does that actually look like with a team? And one of the organizations you highlight in the book is Clear Choice, and they've made some interesting decisions on how to do this. And I'm wondering if you could walk us through just how they've approached getting people into the learning zone in some really intentional ways. Yeah, I, I love Clear Choice, and I talk about you know other organizations that I love in the book. But when I when I first worked with Clear Choice, the first thing that struck me was the following: uh, so they do implants for people when their teeth are damaged, and the 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 incorrect bias that I had, the stereotype, the negative stereotype that I had about what they do coming in before having interacting with them, interacted with them was that I thought their work was just about aesthetics, about helping people look better. And I had no problem with that, but it, it didn't feel to me as meaningful as some of the other companies that, that I work with. Now, when I went in there and I went to their professional development day and I heard kind of their CEO and the other executives talk about the work they do, I was so inspired and I realized how wrong I was because I a lot of the patients that they serve they they have a lot of issue, real big issues that happen from having teeth that either don't look or don't function the way that that is healthy they they don't smile for example they tend not to smile because they're embarrassed about their teeth so that affects their emotions that affects their relationship with other people in many cases it prevents them from eating kind of nutritious foods 
Um, so the, it really affects their lives and their health in deep ways. And when patients work with them and actually fix their teeth and have a, a smile that they can be proud of, it really changes their life. It changes their emotions. So that that was the first thing that I realized about how wrong I was and how purposeful. And that that is something that else that something that they do very intentionally is they point out the the impact of their work and why their work is important, which is part of what we're talking about, right? Because we need we need a purpose, we need energy. If we're going to put effort, whether in the learning zone, in the performance zone, we need a reason to do that. And they're very intentional about identifying what that reason is and communicating it to, to their staff. They also are very intentional about communicating kind of what are those structures and those habits and systems that they use in order to improve. And so when, when an employee joins the company, they first go in a scavenger hunt where they have to go through, it's kind of like a game, but they have to go and sit in on, this is with patients that different people at the company do and ask certain questions, answer certain questions that they have in their scavenger hunt. They actually give feedback to the person they observed, even as a newbie of some of the things that they noticed so that with fresh eyes, the people who are already there can learn from, from those people just coming in. And then once they've done kind of a scavenger hunt in the location where, they, where they're going to be working, they fly to Denver, where, which is their headquarters, and they go to a whole facility where they they unpack what they all learn together. They have simulation rooms where they do role playing. So they they use video in different ways, and and video is one thing that they have they just use in such interesting ways. So one way that they use it is during that time they watch videos of very skilled performers at the company and they talk about what those skilled performers do but they also point out what those very skilled expert performers could do better so that that sends the message hey here's here's a model of excellence but by the way everybody here can continue to improve and that's what we do here the second thing they do there is they then role play they engage in a situation where they are trying those frameworks and those skills that they learned about. They watch themselves in video in a group and they discuss that video. And then the third way that they use videos is they, for patients who accept to, who agree to this, they videotape the, int the actual interactions with patients on a, on a daily basis. And then each person is working on a particular skill at, a, at each patient interaction. And then in between the sessions, in, in between the consoles with patients, they can easily go to that part of the conversation that they were practicing. They can observe themselves and see how they did and see how they want to iterate and how they want to do things differently the next time. And so they have stand-up meetings every morning where they're sharing this information, they're sharing what they're learning. They have games that they play with each other. They have kind of resources to learn and how to kind of mentor and support other people. They have all kinds of systems to, to, to learn as they do their job. And as a result of that, they have over a 50% market share in 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 what they do so to your point sometimes we think that all this time and learning and this effort in learning is going to detract from performance but like you said it actually the the companies that perform the best and the people who perform the best they have figured out ways to embed learning systems into performance systems so they're continuing to improve over time as they get things done
it's really a fascinating example of how culturally so much of the learning zone is espoused and valued. And of course, the actions are there consistently. And the one of the things I heard you just say a moment ago is that even from the very first interactions, like there's expectation of giving feedback, of doing role plays. And it got me thinking back to an early role I had in the first professional job I had, the organization had a culture of doing role plays, and everyone did them. And even though it was sometimes uncomfortable to have people watching you and observing you and doing kind of like a, a, a pretend interaction, it was really fascinating how quickly you would learn from that. Like in a matter of weeks, you would get really better at interacting with customers and in sales situations because it Everyone did it. It was like not a question. It's like, of course, we're going to role play. Of course, we're going to spend time in the learning zone every day. And I just assumed, Eduardo, that that was common in every organization. And I realized later, I'm like, oh, wow, that's actually the exception of, of establishing that culture. But establishing that culture from the very beginning, it just makes such a huge difference, doesn't it? Yes. And that's so cool that you had that experience. And to your point, it, it, learning can be uncomfortable, right? Because we we need yeah. to go outside of our comfort zone and outside of the things we have mastered. But at the same time, we can become more comfortable with those learning structures and habits. So I don't know whether this was the case for you, where you became more comfortable with role-playing over time, but whether it is soliciting feedback or receiving feedback or talking about mistakes or sharing our ideas with, with, our, with our peers, that can be most uncomfortable when we're not used to doing it, when we're doing it for the first time. But then the more we do it, the more comfortable we become at it. And I think, speaking of comfort, there's some things that Clear Choice does that are, I think, really smart on this. And you talk about this in the book of like, this is all permission-based, This that there's rules about they're using videos and the feedback for development, not for evaluation. So there's a whole framework around that. And and I think interesting, too, is they, and you, you highlight a couple of things that they do really well, is that they have a successful model. So they're, they're showing, here's here's a really good way to do this and people are still giving feedback, but there's a model that folks are able to follow. And then there's the opportunity to practice. So the role plays and the practice together, in a way they've systematized creating learning zones within the organization. They're, they're not just leaving it up to chance. This is actually part of what we do. It's part of our process. It's part of our everyday. Yes, it is very much. And also to build on that, it's also not like you follow a formula and you are a robot. They also teach people that virtuosos improvise. Like Picasso said, as a professional, you learn the rules and as an artist, you break the rules, right? So if, you, mm -hmm. if you're the best in the world at something, not only do you know the, the rules cold, but you also can go even beyond that and add some creativity and improvisation and personalization so that you can delight the people that you're with, right? And so to, to, and so to your earlier point, the, the lear learning works best when it's driven by the learner, when the learner is interested and when the learner is figuring out what works best for her, Right. And so 
to the videos, for example, they can share their their videos of their performance with patients, with colleagues for feedback, but it is their choice whether they share and solicit feedback. And those videos, like you mentioned, they can't be used for evaluative purposes, but only for learning purposes. Because if, if you start using them for evaluation, then people are just like showing what they're good at rather than showing what they're not good at trying to solicit feedback. Yeah. But it is driven by the learner. And then each of us as a learner and as a performer, we need to create our own harmony that works best for us in terms of our strategies, our habits, our systems. And But of course, as an organization, we can make that easy. We can make learning the easy default for people to engage in because the systems and habits are there for people to tap. You highlight New York life as well. They have a really fascinating practice of an assist, speaking of systems, study groups inside the organization. What do those look like? Yeah, so this is also an organization that similarly, when I first started working with them, I was struck by their sense of purpose and how much they talked about it. Their mission is to provide financial security and peace of mind. And they really talk about that. Their leaders talk about it. They talk about it in peer conversations. And one of the the things that they encourage people to do is not required. It's just something that is encouraged is for people to form relatively informal study groups, and they can really shape them however they want. And so people can can search for either existing study groups that they help people find, or they can create their own study groups, and they can meet however frequently they want, whether it's in person or virtually. So a typical study group might be 10 people who meet once a month. And they're peers, and they they ha- they might have certain structures or not, but they are there to share with each other to ask questions, right? To ask for resources, share something they're grappling with and get other people's perspectives. And it turns out that the the more that people choose to be in study groups, the higher their performance. So for the highest performing uh, agents in New York life, about 58% of them choose to engage in study groups. And I've spoken and worked with a bunch of them. And so the ones that don't don't engage in study groups, they tend to have other forms of the learning zone. They might be in a rural area without being close to to peers, or they might just feel like they they like to read or watch videos or do other things. So, but that's as opposed to the the people who are the lowest the lowest performers in terms of their size of the portfolio and and their sales, they engage in study groups only about 7% of them do. And then they have different tiers in between the two. And you can see a very clear trend, right? That the the more people choose to engage in the learning zone, the higher their performance. And we see that in New York Life. We see that also in clear choice. The the more that people go to their videos and use their videos, they're higher their performance. And it's also true that when people struggle or when they make mistakes or when they're having a week, a bad week or month, the highest performers go back to their learning zone. That's They use struggle as a cue to engage in the learning zone. And the system supports that, right? And I, I, it's one of my, it's my favorite chart in the book by far is the New York Life agents and their performance correlated with whether they're part of a study group or not. And it is like, so interesting and fascinating, like how much of a correlation there is between those and just that having that framework, that system to find a way to be able to collaborate and learn from others. And like you said, have real intentional time in the learning zone. It's it's key for that. 
It, it is fascinating because we we do tend to think when when I ask people in my sessions what makes it challenging to engage in the learning zone, the the two biggest things that come up are one is fear, right? Fear of how I'm going to be perceived. So that's a culture that is a know-it-all culture rather than a learning culture where the people who are admired and have higher status are people who know rather than people who are trying to know even more, right? To learn more and to get better. And the second one is time. You know, I have so much to do. I don't have time for the learning zone. And so we have the impression that the learning zone is going to detract from performance. And that, again, goes back to what we talked about, about the present bias. We're just so focused on our current results that we don't realize that the learning zone is an investment in results in the medium term and the longer term. And again and again, and that chart is an example, we see that the people who figure out how to create those systems and habits to engage in the learning zone on a regular basis, they achieve higher performance, not only in their work, but also in their life. Yeah, indeed. And speaking of systems, we can't ignore the challenge of performance management in this as well, too, because I think sometimes organizations like do a lot of the things we've talked about, or at least espouse it, and then they send a really different message when it comes to the actual performance management. And you have a few invitations for teams and organizations on thinking about this. And one of them is to, and I'm quoting you, get rid of forced rankings where employees are graded based on their relative performance against one another. And I think about that, and that comes back to the competition for versus collaboration, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, there is based on the assumption that is going to motivate people to perform better, to be competing against their colleagues. But it also sends a message that that talent is a zero-sum game and that what we need to do as leaders and managers and, and as an organization is to select select talent and weed out the bottom so that we stay with the top, right? And focus on helping everybody continue to learn and develop their skills and that we can all succeed. Like if we collaborate to learn more and, and perform more with each other in collaboration, then we'll all achieve better. And so, yeah, that that force ranking of comparing people against each other rather than the alternative would be to help people assess how well they're doing against like a rubric or against some standards in terms of how, how well they're doing their job without the assumption that if some people do well, other people can't do as well, right? Like, how are we objectively doing in terms of our skills relative to how well we want to be doing those skills? In a lot of organizations, there's a intention and a follow-through on setting performance goals, of course, in, in employees' development. And we may or may not espouse learning, but we don't often set it as a goal. And one of the other invitations you make is, yes, set the performance goals, also set learning goals for individuals inside the organization as part of the performance management process. What's an example of what a learning goal would sound like? Well, it would be something that a person wants to get better at, right? So if it's a leader, it might be how the leader wants to facilitate meetings or how the leader wants to coach other people to facilitate meetings, or how the leader wants to engage in difficult conversations. It, it is a skill that you want to improve at. So you think about for the next quarter, say, or the next year, however long the, the, the cadence is, 
what what do I want to focus on improving and how am I going to go about doing that right do am I do I have a mentor or a peer that I'm going to be engaging in like for example I, ha- I have a friend who when when she goes into meetings she has a feedback ally who is in that meeting he's a participant in the meeting but then is observing what what could I offer right in order to in terms of an observation of something that she did well or could do better maybe and then have a quick conversation afterwards about those observations that's a system and a structure that is intentional and it and the person is looking for specifically what she wants to improve on which makes the feedback so much more useful and it just it, it makes it much easier for the person to give because she's soliciting the feedback and it makes it much easier for her to hear it because she initiated kind of the feedback. So that's an example of being intentional around a learning goal and creating a structure around it. So when it comes to performance management, yes, thinking about what are our performance goals and how well did we do against those? And that's important, but also making sure that there are structures for people to identify their learning goals and to identify how they're going about those learning goals to reflect on the prior period. Okay, this is what I said I was going to get better at. This is how I went about it. How well did that go for me? Do I want to make any changes going forward? And then whether within that performance management system or outside of it, are there kind of rituals, habits, structures, templates for people to have ideally regular, frequent conversations that can be quick about that are going to support learning for everybody. It's interesting how most or organizations like don't really spend the time to do that. And what gets measured is ultimately what gets managed towards, right? And so I, I think like what a great first step for almost anybody in our listening audience if you're not already doing this. And and you don't need the larger organization either. I mean, ideally, yes, if the larger organization is doing this, great. But it can also be, hey, on my team, I'm making a decision to let's start setting also the learning goals, not just performance goals. And then you have something to work toward. And that intention is huge. And I, I, it, it come, all this comes back to a, a, a question you ask in the book, which is a key question for managers. How can I inspire my team to embrace both of the zones? performance and learning. And it's going to be different in every organization, but I think like just asking that question. Organizations generally are doing an okay job of like thinking about the performance piece, but how can you inspire the learning piece too? And creating a bit of framework around that is huge. Yes, I, I agree. And I, I, I encourage people to think about engaging in a conversation, right? Exposing your colleagues to this idea, like I I have an 11-minute TED Talk that you mentioned in your intro about the learning zone and the performance zone. You could could have people watch that and then just have a conversation. What do people think about this? How are we doing in terms of engaging in the learning zone and the performance zone? And do we want to do more of that? And what might be challenges? What do we focus on first? And having a conversation about it, hearing and 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 what we find consistently is that people gravitate toward it. they say yes you know i want more of this in my life and in my work rather than kind of dictating it top down just engaging in a conversation and together collaboratively figuring out what do we want to do and how do we want to continue to evolve our culture our habits our systems all right we're going to link up the ted talk in the episode notes so for folks who want to have a place to start that that's a great starting point and i also want to recommend 
the book, there is so much we're sidestepping in this conversation, Eduardo. It's almost it's it's hard to like even think about this in the context of we could do seven or eight episodes just on the book because there's so many things that you invite us to do on dismissing some of the common myths a lot of us have about learning and how we can get better not only for ourselves but for our organizations and have more of a global impact. So if this conversation was helpful to you, I hope that you'll check out the book. Eduardo Bresenio is the author of The Performance Paradox, Turning the Power of Mindset into Action. Eduardo, thank you so much for your work. Great to be here. Thank you, Dave. If this conversation was helpful, here's a few related episodes you may also want to explore. One of them is episode 337, Six Tactics for Extraordinary Performance. Morton Hansen was my guest on that episode, his work at Berkeley, looking at how we can enhance our performance. And we talked about those six tactics. One of them is keeping things small, what he calls chunking it, a small daily action to move us forward. It's one of the principles we utilize in the academy to help our members to move forward, Several other tactics that he advises that help us to continue to learn and to grow pairs very well with this conversation today, episode 337 for that. Another important contribution is, of course, the work of Amy Edmondson. She was on episode 404, How to Build Psychological Safety. Of course, a team that has psychological safety and has a leader who cares about it and is helping create psychological safety is a team that is much more likely to embrace growth mindset. Uh, Her work and her thinking featured in that conversation, episode 404 for that. And finally, I'm thinking about episode 569, The Way to Make Struggles More Productive. Sarah Stein Greenberg was my guest on that episode, her work at Stanford and the D School, looking at how we can actually utilize struggles to help us learn a part of growth mindset, of course. And also, I'm thinking about her work because there are so many wonderful exercises that she has in her book that are helpful for teams who are wanting to establish psychological safety, to establish a framework for a growth mindset, so many places to go in her resources, episode 569 for that. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the Coaching for Leaders com website. I'm inviting you today to set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. When you do, you're going to be able to search the entire catalog of episodes by topic. One of those topic areas is talent development. That's where this episode's going to be filed under many conversations, including a few of them that I just mentioned that we've aired over the years in order to explore more. It's one of the benefits inside a free membership. Another one is access to my library. When you're logged in on the free membership, you can just select Dave's Live. And you're going to find a place there where you can search for all of the past articles, topics, resources I've passed along in the weekly guides over the years, other episodes from other podcasts, articles from Harvard Business Review, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, so many of the resources out there that many of us turn to when we're looking for ideas from the experts. I've cataloged all those for you, thousands of entries in there over the years. They're there for you to access for free. Just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com, and you'll be off and running in Dave's library, along with many other resources inside of the free membership. And if you've been a free member for a bit, I'm inviting you to learn a little bit more about 
Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's an opportunity for you to go even further than you can go in the free membership. And one of the benefits inside Coaching for Leaders Plus is access to the recordings of the monthly expert chats. Each month, I'm making an invitation to a past guest to sit down with our members and to have a conversation about their work. Most recently, we had Daphne Jones, who was featured earlier this year, talking with us on how to get noticed by key stakeholders. Uh, Several of our members and folks from our community submitted questions. We talked with her. That recording is available inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus as it is each month, in addition to all the past recordings. Just one of the many benefits of Coaching for Leaders Plus. You can find out more at coachingforleaders.plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Kroger. Production support is provided by Sierra Smith. This coming Monday, I'm welcoming back Jacqueline Farrington to the show. She's returning to the podcast to discuss how to rehearse before a big presentation. Join me for that conversation with Jacqueline next week, and I hope you have a great week. Take care.